I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. Well, welcome to The Discomfort Practice. I am delighted to be here today with one of my very good friends, Kirsty Schneeberger. Kirsty is one of those people that I look at and think, wow, how do I get to be your friend? She is currently the CEO of Synchronicity Earth, which is a research-driven conservation organization that funds impactful conservation projects and creates a global network of allies. So she's based in London, but they work all over the world. And she has a pretty glorious career to date. Kirsty, you were previously the head of strategic partnerships at the Environmental Law Organization Client Earth, which I love because they treat the Earth as a client and go to battle on its behalf in legal systems all over the world. And she's also worked for the UN and directly with one of my climate heroes, Christiana Figueres, on the Paris climate process, which resulted in the Paris Agreement. We'll talk a bit about that or a lot about that. We'll see where that goes. Kirstie's also a trained lawyer in the UK. She was born in Zimbabwe and raised in England and went to University of Australia. So she's got an international perspective. She was honored with an MBE, member of the British Empire, which is a very prestigious award from the Queen in the United Kingdom for our American listeners that they don't know. And they awarded you that in 2010 for your servants, service to environmental conservation at the age of 26. So she's been at it for a long time. And I've known Kirstie for several years now, and I know her as a very gracious, effective, and passionate fellow professional discomforter. Your soul is in campaigning. It's in everything you do. Uh, we have met so many times at events, but also, you know, personal moments over wine. And I know that you've had some moments of deep discomfort in your career, in your life that have shaped who you are and why you're such an inspiring and impactful leader in the world. So welcome. I'm so happy to have you here today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. All right. So let's kick it off with, this is usually among one of the first questions I ask all guests, but what is an uncomfortable moment that has changed your life and shaped who you are? Um, there are definitely a couple that I can that I can point to. The theme tends to be around where I've looked at the science and I've looked at the evidence relating to the state of the planet and our environment and our climate and the science and the evidence speaks for itself and every time I learn something new in that regard you, my stomach turns to lead a little bit and I get motivated to you know work more on it so I think a couple of key moments um, like that the first was probably when I was at school and I was studying for my finals in chemistry I'm a total um, self-confessed <laughs> science nerd um, and so I was doing my finals in science at school and it, right towards the end, um, um, just before just before the exams, we had one uh, class that really kind of shook my shook my world. And that's where I learned about climate change. I think probably global warming we would have been talking about back then. And I just thought, hang on, hang, hang what? <laughs> really? Firstly, I was I was really incensed i was really outraged at the fact that 
it had taken this long for any sensible grown-up to tell me about this serious issue. So, mm. um, what, I must have been about 17, possibly going on 18, doing my finals at school. And just thinking, hang on a second, this is, wow, this is a, this is a big deal. Why, why am I just learning about it in a lab in my small chemistry class on the kind of molecular level? You know, that's how we were learning about it. Mm. And I thought, you know, I think that's definitely um, a moment where I felt a strong calling to do something in that arena. I'd always known from, from a very young age, I think I became a member of WWF when I was eight and I had the panda sticker on my window. So I've always known from a very young age that the environment is important to me. But this was a defining moment for me of, of deciding, okay, that's that's what I, that's my life's work, as it were. That's going to be my career. So I spoke to my science teacher at the end of the class and said, hi, so this was a big deal. Um, <laughs> what what can I do about it? I was on track to read, read science at, at uni when I'd finished school. And she actually gave me the best advice and really important advice. Uh, so big shout out to Mrs. Tudor. And that was, you know, if you want to do something about global warming, climate change, um, know that it's a political issue. This, this, mm. this battleground is going, you know, this is going to be fought on the battleground of politics. The science is the science is the science, and it will get more and more stark. And more and more scientists will sort of pile in with their, you know, um, scientific understanding and 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 evidence and papers and so on. And that's going to be that. But actually, what we really need to do. Is, is get the politics in line with this. And so, yeah, like that, um, I changed wow. and I didn't go to uni to read science. I, I went instead to firstly do politics. And then you've already mentioned in the introduction, later on I did post-grad law um, here in the UK. Um, yeah, recognising that was going to be an important an important space for this. It's amazing, isn't it, that you think, however many years later it is, that we are still having these policy conversations. <laughs> it's both in enlightening and heart and and totally discouraging that sort of we're on the you know the u.s has just pulled up paris climate agreements which we'll talk about more and that was such a revelation at the time but wow we're still having these conversations that you can't believe are still being had right oh gosh yeah yeah i mean the, right. you know the tide of public opinion is definitely shifting and i think in the last not to totally betray my age 20 years or so um <laughs> We've definitely seen mobilization around the issue and the public really engaging in this issue. And in many respects and in many places, the politics is catching up. But unfortunately, as you said, in some places, some important places, it's still quite far behind where we need yeah. to be. I remember sort of in our field, because we both work in sustainability, environmental, social stuff. About 10 years ago, so many of us were saying, all right, 2020 is when all the Millennium Development Goals are meant to be met. We're all going to have to just take a break or throw ourselves off a cliff when, you know, 2020, either the world is going to be resolved, all the problems will have been changed, or we're all just going to have to have a breakdown. <laughs> and here we are in 2020, having had <laughs> no idea what this year was going to hold, but we're still at it. And in a way, there's been a lot of progress made, right? But I guess... Going back to maybe what, what your other example of discomfort might have been, or we can plunge straight into the work that you do on oof, environmental degradation and species loss and, and really being at the edge of some pretty uncomfortable truths about what we have done to our planet. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, 2020 in many respects has actually been a bigger year than any of us anticipated for the planet. Um, Many of the listeners are probably listening to this uh, in some 
version of restricted living, whether that's lockdown or or just you know socially distanced living, um, and that very much has been a, a consequence of us really mistreating the planet. Um, so I think what's been really interesting this year is just to see the narrative around environmental degradation, ecosystem destruction, and frankly collapse mm. has really um, appealed in a different way I think to a wider audience so not just the scientists and not just the climate nerds as it were but actually you know other other people a much more mainstream audience because what we know is that COVID-19 is what's called a zoonotic disease you know now I think a lot of people will know what that is but that just means a disease that is transferred from animal to human Mm -hmm. Um, and the evidence points to the fact that this came from firstly a bat that then infected a pangolin and it was a pangolin that a very rare and endangered species that caused the transmission from animal to human of the disease. And the, the incidence of these kinds of diseases happening is on the increase because we are putting so much stress and pressure on our environment, on our ecosystems and on the habitats in which these animals live. We're destroying them. We're cutting down forests to create monocultures of you know, insert monoculture crop here, palm oil being the obvious one. Mm, Um, Or soybeans for meat. Yeah, Yeah, large-scale agriculture. And um, we are putting animals under stress, under massive stress. So when we think about our planetary immune system, I like to think about it in terms of that, you know, planetary health Mm. and and the immune system of the planet, we we are destroying that with every species that goes extinct, with every tree that is chopped down, with every ecosystem that is destroyed or, or you know re- reduces in health we are reducing our ability to to withstand these kinds of you know with kinds of these kinds of pressures mm. so yeah it's been, it's been a big year I think also um not to get too gloomy about the state of the world the WWF living, living planet report just came out mm. in the last week and that shows that since 1970 we're looking at about a 68 percent decline in species you know, from 1970 to They've become extinct since the 1970s, right? So two-thirds of species in existence have become extinct? Well, well, rapid decline and loss of, and many, many of them have been pushed to extinction, right? But just that, just when you look at that in a graph format, you know, you've got put 1917 at one end and the line just goes down very steeply to where we are now, where the latest data and science was that WWF were using for that. You know, that's, that's that's pretty shocking. Um, I guess also just to to think about where we as humans tend to be, we well, I don't want to make a sweeping generalization, but I think we've both done enough campaigning and behavior change work to see that a lot of humans are very divorced from the idea, or removed from the idea that we are actually part of an ecosystem, that we don't exist separate from that, well, in the global immune system. You know, we talk about the forests being the lungs of the planet because we need trees and plants in order to breathe we need them to produce oxygen um, and to soak up the co2 we create but also that idea that we are crashing into habitats and destroying habitats that we don't know what diseases and viruses are there that actually humans aren't we haven't evolved yet to withstand and so we are part of this ecosystem whether we realize it or not so just tying that to the very human which is always my aim with everything we're not just fuzzy environmentalists who care about bees more than anybody else we care about humans right that's why we do what we do ultimately 
Yeah, and that sense of the other, you know, the the environment is seen as like the other, the, the trees over there, the the animals over there, and I am a human and I'm over here. And actually, I think what this year has really done is just shown how interconnected we are more than we imagined, more than we understood, probably. Um, you know, and it's brought it into really sharp focus that actually, what is the individual anymore? Does the individual even exist, really? We are mm. we are connected. And also, it's important for us to feel connected, right, at times of stress and at times of difficulty and be yep. supported by our communities. But um, just thinking, as we were talking there, it just reminded me of a couple of other moments of discomfort, thinking oh. about the science. Um, and feel free to steer me into more positive uh, <laughs> we'll area. Get we'll get there. You know what? I think we talked about this before we started recording about the, the value of really getting uncomfortable with these things because yeah. we're at a stage where... You can't just give somebody a positive message and a little a little sticking plaster over something. We need to sit with a lot of this discomfort and figure out collectively, what are we going to do with this? Because it's there are no quick fixes anymore. And we can't just get by with positive messaging because it's not easy. It can't be easy. There are some hard things to do. I love to quote Glennon Doyle. We know Glennon Doyle. She says, we can do hard things. And I think that's something to embrace right now. But over to your uncomfortable moments, because let's just, let's get it out. Let's do this. Let's get uncomfortable. You talked about, um, again, 2020 being a big year. A, cu- a couple of years ago, so it was just after the Paris Agreement, one of the things that, so the, the UN climate process has an advisory body of scientists. And these scientists provide the science to inform the negotiations, put very simply. And they were tasked with producing a very special report on, it's called the 1.5 degrees report. So for those of you who are fairly familiar with climate terminology, um, we really have to keep global warming or global temperature increase to below a maximum of two degrees and 1.5 degrees, really. And that's Celsius, for those of you who think in in other... um, temperature formats really to keep us on a stable climate pathway and to Mm. prevent what what is known as runaway climate change and that that report was published a couple of years ago and it said we have a window to act until 2030 and really Mm. that's that's it so you know it's interesting because we think about these decade-long campaigns there was the millennium development goals one as you mentioned the sustainable development goals framework has replaced that and that's the one that we're in now we've got the Paris regime and so on and so forth um but reading that science and really seeing that stark warning of like it's now it's really now or never and I know as a campaigner you know you and you and I and everybody else you always have to bring that sense of urgency um Mm -hmm. to to the campaign that you're bringing which I think in many respects can make it lose currency you know Mm. you say this is urgent but the problem is when everything is urgent, nothing is urgent. Yeah. Because how do you prioritize one urgent thing over another urgent thing over another urgent thing? And when we're looking at yeah, prioritizing what we do in mm-hmm. terms of restoring our environment, regenerating our environment, getting our climate back on more stable, you know, um, trajectories and so on. But that 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 was that was that was a pretty big moment. Yeah. Um well we're talking about overwhelm, aren't we? I think. Yeah. We're talking about how do you prioritize the things that you need to prioritize in campaigning when everything is urgent? And how do you how do you deal with the fact that people hit overwhelm fast when you talk about climate change or you talk about these really big things that we're all facing 
And it's just easier to kind of go back to being like, you know what, I'm just going to watch Netflix. <laughs> so maybe that brings us to, you know, sort of the the burnout that we've both and many people who are professional discomforters, as I talk about us, being how how we've hit burnout at various points, how we've dealt with it. So I guess, you know, talk about how how have you avoided that or gone through it? And how has that brought you to where you are? Because I know we've talked about Copenhagen and Paris and other UN climate talks. Maybe this is a good moment to talk about that. Yeah. Um, gosh. It's so difficult to switch off when you feel like what you do is so all-consuming. And I think there are a lot of people who are very passionate about what they do, their work, their life's mission, um, everything that they do, they feel so passionate about it. And it's very difficult to switch off. And you do get to a point where you completely burn out. And I think there have there have certainly been moments over the last few, many, many years where I've felt like I've really dipped into those quite dark recesses and depths of despair. Mm -hmm. um, I think in poetical or philosophical terms, sometimes it's called the long, dark night of the soul. You know, those yeah. moments when you're really staring into what you perceive or know to be an abyss and you just don't quite know your way out of it because nothing mm. is familiar to you anymore. And I think there've been, there've been moments where I think probably again, to, to think about like a kind of theme around it, those moments where I felt like I've known, <laughs> I think what needs to happen, stop the climate crisis. This is one way in which we can do it. The UN comes up with an agreement and I've tried to campaign or promote it happening and then it hasn't. And then you feel like you just have no agency in the direction that your life is going in. Because if you're mm. staring down the barrel of the gun of all of this science and all of this evidence that shows you that, yeah, this is this is this is a large abyss. This isn't just this isn't just a little puddle that you can jump over, but this is this is big and this is humanity wide and this is global in its nature. So I think, so thinking about the Copenhagen talks, you mentioned them. So um, um, there was 2009, a lot of pressure on the UN system to deliver a global agreement to come up with the next plan for what we were going to do with climate change. And there was a lot of pressure in that system. And I was there as a youth activist, youth campaigner, promoting messages like, um, you know, uh, we ran a campaign, how old will you be in 2050? to the delegates reminding them that actually we're the ones that are inheriting their mess, frankly, and we're mm -hmm. the ones that are going to have to deal with it, clean it up and, and so on. So really you must think about us in your decision-making. That was very much the strand or the theme of the, the a lot of the campaigning that we did as, as, as the youth, the youth delegates. And you're there and you're in the pressure cooker and it was, it was, you know, it was too much pressure possibly or the wrong kind of pressure or um, it just, and going in with your youthful optimism and then <laughs> Copenhagen, nothing really happened. <laughs> yeah, it didn't deliver. Like there was a massive breakdown of talk of the talks. There was an accord that came out that was signed by some of the big developed countries, but um um it was resented by many others and not signed up to by by even more. And and so in, in mm -hmm. many respects, a lot of people talk about Copenhagen as a failure. And I think when when you reflect on it, there were some really really difficult moments during that time um 
And how did that hit you personally? Because I think that's what Mm. makes this particularly relevant is you went in with gusto and the enthusiasm of a youth campaigner and then and then that not much happened. What happened to you? How did that impact you? Yeah, God, it was exhausting. It was devastating. I went into full retreat mode afterwards. Mm. Um, Just during the climate talks, you talk about me having a lot of youthful energy, but a lot of the young campaigners did. And a really quite bleak moment was um, a number of the youth advocates had gone on climate strike um, to demonstrate how much this mattered to them. And as a form of uh, sort of nonviolent protest and to really show we, we are young people and we want you to do something about it and a very good friend of mine was one of those who joined in and, and I saw her at after day 40 of being on hunger strike wow. at, at, at the talks in Copenhagen and it was it was really confronting and upsetting and um it, it was such a shock and there are a few of us who who were in, in a youth group together if I can put it like that mm-hmm. and I just remember we were so sad at the fact that um the way that one person put it climate change isn't just stealing our future but it's stealing our now to (sighs) feel all of us lose our energy and all of us lose our passion in many respects and to feel completely out of control and completely disempowered in that process and to witness the energy the 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 sunshine and the light completely leaving you know some of our closest and dearest friends and us ourselves as, you know, in those really dark moments of the talks. So I think came away from it and just went into, yeah, full retreat mode, thought, okay, that's a system that can't deliver. I, I put so much mm. hope in, in the UN, you know, I was like, I'd been a young UN, model UN delegate yeah. when I was at school and I put so much hope in it and it, and it, hadn't, and it had failed. So I, yeah, I said to myself, I, I'd never I'd go back to the UN I I really lost faith in it and I thought I'd focus on some grassroots activities work with very local organizations so that you can see change on the ground and you can really feel like you're making a difference Mm. but um as you already indicated (laughs) fast forward a little bit to Paris because you came back to the UN what happened and and I think you've got a you've got a good line here talking about what down can actually lead to so yeah talk about Paris so I think yeah um uh, I say that um, many people say that actually we couldn't have got Paris without having gone through Copenhagen because you have to have a breakdown in order to get a breakthrough Mm. and And talk about what that breakthrough was for people who don't know about the Paris Accord yeah yeah so um this time I went back not as a youth campaigner but actually working for the UN team, the secretary, you've mentioned mm-hmm. there, Christiana Figueres was heading it up. Um, one of my heroes <sighs> too. Still. I love her. Oh, wow. Yeah, she's amazing. And we, and we were, we were a little political advisory team that supported her on the negotiations and the process of, of getting the Paris agreement. So put very simply, um, the negotiations were successful and you had global consensus. It wasn't a two thirds majority vote. It, you know, it wasn't it wasn't hands up mm-hmm. who 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 wants this and hands up who doesn't. Oh, the ones with hands up, we get it. Actually, global consensus around the deal, the mm. the agreement that says, amongst other things, um, we are we are we agreed to we agreed to strive for a net zero. A lot of people know about this because net zero has been in the press a lot with 
individual countries coming up with their own net zero targets. Net zero by the second half, by 2050, the second half of the century, we also have in there um, the 1.5 degree target. I mean, it says two degrees, but with every ambition to achieve 1.5 degrees. So I mentioned that already in, in, in terms of the scientific mm -hmm. paper and various other really important sort of components. But essentially what you have is every country in the world saying, one, this is such an important issue. Two, we're going to work together to do something about it. And three, we're also going to work individually in terms of our own, mm. what we can do as our own governments and, 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 you know, make sure that we are transforming the economies at the national scale, as well as working collectively at, at the international scale. So, um, so that, that was, that was quite a different experience. Although I have to say the whole time, the, it's sort of 18 months in the run-up to Paris and then during the talks themselves I was I, I really felt on edge because I I had lurking in the back of my mind that feeling of despondency disappointment I mean I used the word before despair and just mm -hmm. not wanting to go through that again not wanting to have put so much more energy and hope and belief into a process and it fail again and mm. that was really uncomfortable you know, and I think wow. it sort of added to, to 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 just the general stress of working on that. But um, mm, the fear of mm, it having it, it having it happen at all again, like the Copenhagen experience, Mark II, and then what do you do? Yeah. Oh, and also for those listening, net zero, we're talking about carbon emissions, right? Sort of carbon emissions. Yeah, to stop the <laughs> rapid, rapid, more rapid march of climate change of global warming so yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, net zero fun 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 yeah it's just a balance really it's yeah. just a, it's balancing the equation because at the moment we're putting too much out and we're not absorbing enough in so you know it's like it's like filling the tap in a bath yeah. and the bath is neither big enough to absorb it all but also the tap doesn't switch off so we need to firstly switch off the tap so stop the carbon emissions mm -hmm. going out and then secondly make the bath bigger so that we can absorb more of what's already Mm -hmm. you know in the atmosphere in the system yeah so yeah. um so that was quite a different experience in the uh jubilation and exhilaration when the uh the hammer or the gavel went down to declare that the paris agreement you know had been reached that was that was that was that was quite something made it made it all mm -hmm. worth it but um it'd be, we'd be having quite a different conversation if that had <laughs> been the outcome you got through the discomfort yeah because often the only way the only way through it is through it but and also, I think you talked about sort of stepping back after Copenhagen and, and changing your focus a bit because you were just exhausted and burned out and needed to focus on something different and didn't know if you were ever going to come back. And that kind of leads us to, oh, 2020, oh, paradigm shift, because we are in the thick of a paradigm shift. We've talked about this. A lot of other people on this podcast have, and we'll talk about this, that things are breaking down. Things are changing. We're seeing a lot of good, but we're also having a painful moment on a lot of fronts. So just talking about what do we do in the midst of this discomfort of paradigm shift? And you're coming at it from, you know, sort of an environmental ecosystem approach, but also personally, you know, we're in the midst of this. We're all part of the systems that are breaking down. So what do we do with this? Yeah. Um, I like to conceptualize the paradigm shift not just the one that we're going through now but you know in general when you're looking at we're exiting an old system and we're entering into a new system and you can kind of see those two things as separate things you know you've got the old and then the new but of course the venn diagram <laughs> or the overlap between them is this messy uh, painful but also gloriously creative mm. um 
um, mixture of deciding what we want to leave behind from the old and what we want to take forward with us as well as really reaching into that kind of pioneering spirit of what can we can we create from nothing mm. and what can we imagine now that was never it was never possible to imagine before right so so we really are in in that kind of heady but difficult uh, overlapping space but between the two paradigms and I like to think of it as, because a lot of people will talk about transformation and a lot of people will talk about um you know what it what it takes to really achieve that transformation and sticking with the nature analogy um everyone will know that a caterpillar turns into a butterfly and um every, everyone will know that the caterpillar sits on its leaf and it eats and it gets fat and it fills itself up and then it goes into a cocoon and then it comes out as a butterfly but i'd like to kind of delve a little bit deeper into that because i think there were some really helpful mm-hmm. i don't know lessons or stories that we can tell ourselves from it so what's really interesting about the caterpillar is the caterpillar is born or it hatches um with not only its caterpillar cells inside it but also some of its butterfly cells inside it so it already has on a molecular level a recognition or an understanding that at some point it's going to become something else but the caterpillar initially bites off these butterfly cells thinking that they're a foreign object that they're a, I don't know they're a disease or they're a virus mm. and so it sends its immune system to to go and fight them fight them off but these butterfly cells as the caterpillar is growing um and nourishing itself start to kind of cluster together and they cluster together in a way that they can start fighting back essentially saying like mm. no 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 we're meant to be here and uh, <laughs> butterfly cell gang the butterfly <laughs> cell gang that sounds like a really cool 90s pop group um oh. they missed a trick there um, <laughs> so the butterfly cells you know like, all come together and the, the moment at which um the caterpillar is triggered to go into chrysalis so um it it goes into its cocoon and in there it wraps itself up in, in a cocoon and pretty much everything dissolves and it dissolves into the, so it's dark in there and it's fluid and it's messy and it's just full of potential, right? And mm. I think by my um, organization, Synchronicity Earth, one of my trustees and, and, and founders calls that moment the butterfly soup moment, which <laughs> if you just sit with that for a moment, it's a bit uncomfortable, but I think it really rings yeah, it's gross. Quite. It's uncomfortable. It's like, ew, what's going on in there? It's butterfly soup. But it's kind of amazing as well, right? When yeah. you then take it to the next level and think, okay, so so what is happening? It's preparing itself to completely recreate into something unimaginable. If you draw mm. a caterpillar and you've never seen a butterfly and you ask yourself, what could this become? There's no way you draw a butterfly. I don't know, maybe there is. But what I think is a really powerful and important lesson for us is um, some of the organs of the caterpillar do stick around and and turn uh, and 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 become part of the butterfly. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to think about like the heart, the caterpillar's mm-hmm. heart. And so, when thinking about transformation, thinking about transforming from one paradigm to another, from one system to another, how do we bring kindness? with Mm. us how do we have kindness right now for ourselves for each Mm. other for this weird messy soupy dark exciting moment and how do we have kind of like kindness and trust and love I suppose 
in the in the process and in ourselves mm. to know that we can emerge as you know a, a beautiful butterfly and I think yeah and in and in my practice now um thinking a lot more about that self-kindness mm-hmm. but also practicing kindness you know just out there generally yeah. I think it's a really powerful thing because what is your what is your practice that takes you to the edge of your own comfort zone besides your work because obviously you're always dancing on the edge of you're on the battle lines with this stuff you you know the science you know the reality of ecosystem collapse you're trying to bring that to attention and change things at a systemic level but what is your personal discomfort practice what are the things that nourish you but also challenge you you know i think um it's it's shifting a bit before i very much um you know i'm like i'm a runner so i used to do lots of sports at school and lots of sports at uni and then didn't didn't really stick with the sports but kept up the running and like I'm a runner and I train and I train hard because you know I kind of I work hard and I and I train hard you run marathons (laughs) yes we know (laughs) (laughs) but but also to train myself you know how do you how do how do you push through that wall when the wall hits Mm. at kilometer 33 30 32 33 34 and you just think there is my body just simply cannot go on how do you get your mind in gear to really say, no, we we do it. And you've got, wow, that is digging deep. And I think in, you know, but before a lot, a lot of my work, when it becomes difficult, when I become a bit tired, when I become a bit overwhelmed, when I have that, oh, I just want to disappear into the forest moment and and live a very simple life. Like how I kind of like to think that I can dig deep because I have done a lot of this running, but, but I think going back to the point about, you know, shifting, (laughs) perhaps Mm. shifting my own self, my own practice, thinking about being a bit kinder to myself. So I practice mm-hmm. yoga a bit more. So doing some slower um, um, exercises and l- learning to be comfortable in the stillness. Oh yeah, that's challenging. That's really challenging. And it's really challenging when you think every second that goes by another whatever percent of carbon has gone into the atmosphere and I haven't fulfilled my life's mission. And that can be really destructive and exhausting. Mm-hmm. So I've taken up drawing as well. Um, pencil drawing just really really simple I'm I'm not great I took art at school at the junior <laughs> level but um it's been a long time and you know just in the last couple of months and I'm I'm drawing natural th- nature um flowers at the moment is my thing uh just to kind of relish in the in the in the softness of the flowers and try and bring that into my life as I'm drawing but then also you know, as I'm as I'm working on a day to day basis, because here's the thing: the language that we use around environmental destruction, deg- even that destruction, degradation. Mm-hmm. These words are very hard. They're very harsh. Um, thinking about climate and climate tipping points and disaster and you know and 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 doom and gloom and destruction. It's mm-hmm. it's really it's really harsh. And and how do we create the space for? Yeah, just those 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 softer elements to come through. So anyway, mm. so that's that's been a new practice for me, and I've been really enjoying it. And um, well, I think that's really useful, particularly right now, or particularly to anyone listening who is an activist or a campaigner, or simply wants to live a life of purpose. What are the moments when you need to step back and be soft? Because you can't always be on the front lines. You can't always be out there fighting. Particularly, we're talking about. These issues where the language is appropriately cataclysmic, but you can't be in that all the time without 
burning out and kind of losing your own agency, your own fire, your own passion. And that is exactly what makes you powerful and what you do is your humanity. So what's the moment? How do you deal with the burnout? How do you stay away from burnout? How do you take care of yourself to avoid that? Because that's an element of discomfort that's also important. When do you step away from discomfort and nourish yourself so you can step back into it? Yeah, because otherwise it's completely unsustainable. And mm-hmm. to carry the theme of transformation, outer transformation can only happen with inner transformation. And if I'm completely depleting my resources in this cycle of use all my resources up, have a bit of a crash, recharge, use all the resources up, have a bit of a crash, recharge, that's not sustainable. And that's not what I want to see happening in the world. And so, yeah, for me, it's like I see my kind of emotional resilience reservoir um, is a really important part of my day-to-day practice, not just for my work, but life. And how do I, I love that word nourish. Um, how do I keep, you know, nourishing myself and keep topping up that reservoir so that it can sustain me through some of the more difficult times and, you know, were there to be moments up ahead that are a bit more difficult, then I know that I've got that store. Oh, there will be. There will yeah. be. So you in the UK have just gone into a second lockdown as of yesterday. So and a lot of us are in and out of restrictions. Nobody knows when these are going to end. And we're mourning our normal. We are feeling isolated quite a lot. And I think there has also been a beautiful element of finding community and really realizing how much we need each other and how connected we are. But how do we deal with the grieving over our normal over the environment, over our lives that have changed probably forever. What do we do? <laughs> I have some answers, but I want to hear yours. Because we're all in this together. We are all yeah. grieving something. I don't think anyone can escape that. And, and yeah. yeah, we're doing it together. And I think that's part of the, the beauty and the hardship of 2020. And COVID is none of us is in this alone. And now we know that. Yeah. But how do we deal with the grief? And how do we say goodbye to those things that are old in terms of the old system and the old paradigm? And how do we embrace the new? And how do we support ourselves through that grieving process? But I think for me, really, the, the grief strikes when I think about the natural world. And actually um, went to a funeral service a few weeks ago. And um, there was a... There was, um, one of the readings had this phrase it said grief is love with nowhere to go wow and you know that has that has really sat with me since then and we think about how much we love our natural world how connected to our natural world we really are and feel and lockdown has taught us that if we don't have the opportunity to get out into nature to walk amongst the trees to and I appreciate it's not as easily accessible for many many people but even just to be outside in the fresh air or or or, or wherever you might be we love that we 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 know that we do on this deep deep level we are intimately intertwined and connected with our natural world and we love it and we are Mm. dealing as we've been discussing with the loss of it all and what like where can we put that love and that's mm. what that grief is for me and I mean how 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 do we deal with that I mean, it's partly why I do what I do right because mm-hmm. I work in conservation and 
restoration and and ensuring that we may you know get our biodiversity of the world up to a healthy level so that so that we don't have to fully grieve it and we don't have to focus on the loss of it but um you know that this is where the collective becomes so important i suppose we need mm. to really be there for one another and support each other because our grief will take different shapes and forms and our mm. grief will be grieving different things but I, mm. yeah i think possibly in this in this chrysalis in this transformational moment actually yeah part of that is so much of the grief and uh, and being in it right like you can't there's no escape from it and trying to escape from it is actually shortcutting the process of it leading to something the butterfly soup moment is maybe it's useful to think actually what do we do with this grief we simply have to be in it for now but we are not alone in it and it will lead to something else. And it may be hard. I mean, that's life. There are always hard things. But we grieve together. And I love that. Grief is love with nowhere to go. What do we love? What really matters to us? Because I'm having a lot of conversations with people, either in my university lectures I'm giving or just conversations with clients. But people really are aligning with their values. They're starting to understand their purpose and their values and they're seeking them. And that is the butterfly soup moment. They're gathering the beautiful things together to come out differently, I think. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's, that's just it, isn't it? I suppose in our, in our world, the old is being the individual caterpillar and the new is being the collective butterfly, perhaps to really torture the metaphor and analogy um, Mm. to, to its, its outer reaches. Um, (laughs) I hope everybody takes butterfly soup from this episode (laughs) and you think, all right, I'm in the butterfly soup. You know, I have to see t-shirts of that out there someday and be like, yeah. we talked about butterfly soup. Yeah, we're in we're in the butterfly soup moment, aren't we? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of um work being focused and thinking and, and philosophizing being done around the co-creation, cooperation, collaboration. How do we work collectively, you know, in community? Mm. But also mm. there's lots of um <laughs> re things going around that regenerate restore you know mm-hmm. re reforest um return to things return yeah, yeah. That, that's right that is this great return and i think collectively yeah it, it I, I mean that's it's it's not a groundbreaking insight at all but just how how do we support each other to process this to 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 stick with it and then as we emerge not be afraid of what we're emerging into and really try and co-create that, that beautiful thing on 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 the other side and strive for it and give ourselves that you know beautiful ideal of, mm. of, of what we want to yeah see and I think that actually ties things together quite neatly because you've talked about the return and we've talked about regeneration which means there is hope so it's kind of a combination of the things we've talked about the butterfly soup moment of we just have to be in this discomfort we have to be in this grief but then we're in it together. And then there is hope because we have to make things better. And as a species, as a human species, we are resilient, we are innovative, we are creative, and we are communal. So maybe that's, you know, what do you what do you think is productive to be uncomfortable about? What discomfort would you leave people with? And what legitimate hope would you like to leave people with? I think this is a good final question to have because I think the two are necessary. We need hope. But we also need to stop staying away from discomfort. And there's no avoiding it now. 
We are in it. We're in the butterfly soup, people. I'm going to stop using that analogy. I'm beating it to death, but we're in discomfort. It can't be avoided. So what do we actually need to be uncomfortable about? And then yeah. what's the hope? Yeah. Well, I think, I think with that, let me, let me see if I can just really tie everything together. I think having that discomfort is important because it wakes us up and it challenges us mm-hmm. to step up and do things. And I think there's, there's a phrase, I think it might be Dante's Inferno who says there's a there's a special place in hell reserved for those who in times of a moral crisis sit on the fence huh. and I think the days of sitting on a fence are, are done they're over we are in a moral we are in moral crises there are multiple crises going on right now not just environmental social economic you know all, all sorts of justice issues we are in a crisis so how do we not sit on the fence and I think sitting in that discomfort will get us off the fence mm. but then here's here's where it can be tricky because getting off the fence is one thing but staying there and really facing down your fears is another so hope that who was it augustine who said hope has two daughters courage and fear so we can have Mm. hope but recognize that there will be fear for it failing fear for it not working out fear for the old just coming back and us sort of lazily accepting it sleepwalking with our apathy into you know just a worse version of the old that we think is the new but actually if we can have courage and we hold uh, you know hold that courage tightly or just let ourselves be courageous um then then i really believe that we'll, we'll be able to 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 walk through it and 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 together mm-hmm. and here's the interesting thing about the word courage it means of the heart you know courage mm. um it means of the heart and so i i like to think that when we are hopeful for things and we are really striving for that transformation and doing our bit and doing what we can have heart and mm. let your heart guide you and nourish you and support you, particularly in those difficult moments, but also to help you rejoice in in some of the more delightful and, and joyous ones. Yeah. What a beautiful thing to leave people with. And that is exactly it. Feel the fear and live with heart because that's what the world needs. That's what you need as a human. So we all need as a human. So nourish yourself nourish others live with the heart connect to your humanity and we will get through this somehow the world will look different we don't know what it's going to look like we will get through this together and we can't expect or predict what things will look like but we'll get there together and it's it's exciting it's scary it's all of the things right yeah. Uh, Kirsty, it's been such a delight. I always love talking to you. I miss you. I cannot wait until we can actually see each other again when, who knows when that will happen. But in the meantime, thank you for your words. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your life. And I will probably see you again on here sometime soon. Thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you so much, Betsy. This is wonderful. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable. Mm-hmm.